all of us, regardless of whether or not we produce in written form and design form and artistic form, whatever it is, and we all enter into the process willingly knowing it's coming, but yet we do it over and over and over again. Why do we do it? Because of what happens on the other side of it, the satisfaction of solving something really well, regardless of what form that takes. That satisfaction is intoxicating. It's why we keep going back to it. It's why we're, we're willing to walk into the darkness because of the light that comes on the other end. In this podcast, we'll talk about the ups and downs of the design and marketing business, lessons we've learned, and share ideas and support that get us through the day. And sometimes we'll just shoot the shit. So welcome to the Creative Shit Show. Stefan, first of all, welcome to the show. I've been spending the last um, several days preparing um for uh to see you and this is fantastic this is one of the few times that we are actually at eye level right because normally you're you're towering well over everybody That's both true. in stature and ego right and, uh, and mostly ego yeah it's yeah, almost all yeah, ego. yeah yeah <laughs> well uh hey there's so many things that we'd love to to talk to you about but i i want to start with just kind of starting this year, like catching up, share with us, like what you're doing now at first person, talk about, you know, your role and, and all the magic that you bring to your story shamanism. <laughs> I don't know about that. Now, first person, um, we're a story shop primarily uh, in, in San Francisco. I'm down in, in Southern California. We've got, we got folks all over the place, but uh, the, the shop is in San Francisco. Most of us are in San Francisco. Most of our clients are Silicon Valley technology clients. Folks that have really amazing uh, stories to tell and have no idea how to tell it. So they kind of bring us in to help define what about their story is relevant, is interesting, how we might tell it in a unique way um, to pull out the best parts of it that people will remember and take with them. So most of the work that I do is is on the front end of that. You know, I, I came up as a as a designer and uh, and a writer, sort of secondarily to that. My role here is as a director of narrative strategy, which you know, our industry as a whole, all of our industry is uh, fairly notorious for just making up titles of whatever we want to be. And and I've actually kind of enjoyed that part of our industry. It's like, I want to be this. And so I make up some title for it. Um, but director of narrative strategy is, it sounds way more intelligent than it really is. It's just me at the beginning of the process, listening to our clients and learning as much about their technology as I can or who their audiences are, and what those audiences care about. And then trying to connect the dots between what it is that they make, what it is that they do, and what their audiences really need, and what it is that they want, what they care about, and just put together a strategy that we can tell a story against. And then I give it to the amazing creatives we have in whatever form that that story needs to take and let them tell it. Um, so it's really just me crafting story at the very highest level, uh, try to figure out what, what really matters. But it, it's weird, you know, as we've all grown in our, in, in our industry and grown in our professions, how many different roles we take on that we never expected to take on. If you would have asked me 20 years ago, if I'd be doing this, I'd be like, you're nuts. I am not smart enough to do that. Uh, I draw pictures for a living, um, <laughs> but it sort of just, it molds and it forms and it evolves and the needs of the industry evolve is with it. And you just kind of move with it and figure out what it is that you enjoy doing, what it is that you're good at. And hopefully those two overlap in a way that you can do it at, uh, as much as you can. So. Love it. So yep. before my esteemed colleagues jump in here, I think what I want to know is when you're, you know, approaching this, I think one of my favorite things I've learned about you is I think for anyone to be a good storyteller, you have to, in my opinion, please disagree with me. You have to have a lot of story intake, right? You have to have a lot of things that are really, you know, um, kind of pushing you to think bigger, broader, whatever. Do you agree with that? And if so, what sort of areas do you go to or look for inspiration when it comes to, you know, being the, the story dude? <laughs> well, I, uh, yes, I completely agree. Input is, is huge. Um, in part because without, like anything, without data, you can't understand the patterns that exist within things. You have to have the more, the more data you have, the more you can see those patterns. And for me, the, the nature of story is so interesting in that we are confronted with I mean, hundreds of stories every single day. They take on different forms from social feed posts to conversations we have with our family and our friends to the work that we do. We're just confronted with stories. But at the end of the day, when we're with our significant other and they say, how was your day? 
we pull out only one or two of those things to share. Why do we do that? What, what was it about those stories that resonated with us? There's, some, there's a formula that exists for each of us that's unique and it's personal. And in that way, the stories that intersected with that are the ones that we end up sharing. They have greater volume in our lives. We heard them more in our day. Finding out what those are takes input. It takes data. And so you can find inspiration from a story standpoint in anything. I, I have, there are two areas that I, I love to hear stories. One of them is in the context of entertainment. And you guys know this because uh, we spent the last decade together doing this. Uh, I love the movies and um, mm -hmm. I go to the movies an awful lot. I love the theater specifically. It's not just the movie. This is something that separates Justin and I. Justin, Justin is much more mature than I am in his, in his story input. He can take in story in just about any format. I covet the theater. I love the theater in part because I am sequestered. No one can get to me. And there's no, there's no other um, moment that can take over that moment because in, inevitably in every story, there are moments where you get bored. I'm bored of this story in this moment. It may be a great story, but in this moment, it's like, uh, when we're here at home and we're in other aspects, we can divert our attention to other things, which uh, unfortunately those, th those moments are important. We just don't know why they're important yet. And the theater sequesters me so that I have to pay attention to them. So I take that in a lot. And then um, this is a weird one, but uh, the, the stories that we hear from children are usually some of the purest form of story because they, they don't know how to banter. They don't know how to fill. They just tell you what they saw, what they experienced. And in most cases, what they saw and experienced was brand new to them. So you get it raw. And in that way, it becomes an incredible form of inspiration for what's really important in a story what a child would say is important in the story. Um, they don't know what is and isn't possible. So those worlds just naturally overlap. And uh, it becomes an incredibly powerful form of inspiration if you take the time to do it. That's so true. Yeah. How many movies do you see in a year? Well, pre-pandemic, it was uh, it was over 100 in theater. Uh, Post-pandemic, it's not that I don't have time. It's that there just aren't that many movies going into the theater. Right. Uh, there's many more distribution vehicles. So uh, cheaper ways for people to get the, the movies out there. So unfortunately, I've, I've seen less. Uh, last year, I saw 81. That was my In total. theater? In theater, wow. which which wow. is that pretty is much every movie that they released <laughs> uh, in, in the theater last year. I was just so desperate for it. So it does not count. That 81 does not count the 17 times I went and saw Top Gun Maverick. Uh, oh my gosh, what a great movie. As, <laughs> yeah, 17 let's, let's, times? Let's be clear because uh, the, the rules, you and I have talked about rules before. Yeah. It has to be the 81 is movies he's seen for the first time. First time, oh. yeah. And yes. his rule yes. is in the theater. My my rule could be streaming. Um, that's right. And whatever, but that's where we differ. That is crazy. So. Well, that's in part because Justin loves documentaries and they just don't bring docs to theaters that much. So right. uh, it'd, be, it'd be tough to, to experience those if, if that was your only medium. Right. I, I have to admit, Top Gun, I've only seen it once, but I was giddy the whole time. And my husband just didn't get it. He was like, what? what? And I'm like, oh my God, look at this. Did he oh see the original? Yes. The, the, original, the original was <laughs> nostalgic was for me. I don't know if it was for you, but it's just. Yes, it, and I think it, it could be he's a little bit older. He's always been artsy fartsy and maybe get into that type of thing. But yeah. I loved it. I'm like, look at how that's going up and then down. And <laughs> I fell in love with the movies in the 80s. Um, you know, I uh, it was just me and my mom growing up and and that era of my life, I spent an awful lot of time alone. And so I, I would, I would just go to the movies cause I could get in for, you know, two fifty cause I'm super old. Uh, I could get in for two fifty, and I could just bounce around from theater to theater and see what was ever, whatever was there. Right. And so that, that era, that time that Top Gun came out, that era of filmmaking was just, it, it was where I fell in love with it. And so Maverick, they just brought all of it back out. They made it for oh, me. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there's a little part of the it was magical. It was, it really was. It was it, it, magical. It wasn't, it wasn't the most groundbreaking film. It follows a pretty, a pretty tried and true formula, but, it, but that tried and true formula was unknown to me when I first saw Top Gun. And so it just, it brought all the feeling that I really love. It's why I go to the theater uh, to get moved in that way. Yeah. I would say to Vaughn's point, like it, the reason it was magical to me is nostalgic. And then they didn't, they didn't try to do too much. They didn't try to make, you know, Tom Cruise younger than he was, right? Like, they, 
and uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was really solid. Yeah, um, I like I mean, Miles I liked Teller. The fact that he was he was so vulnerable in it, and that is not a typical Tom Cruise role. Yeah, it was very very relevant yeah. for me. I mean, just a, an aging older guy that he has to deal with the fact that he's getting older, and he has to deal with the concept he, of relevance. And he and was the, so small compared to everybody else. They even play, you know, his size, usually he is small, but usually he doesn't appear as small, but he even appeared small and they, they went with that. And I thought yeah. that was good. Yeah, just something you know who else is really vulnerable? Is Vaughn. Vaughn, I want to <laughs> say, I really appreciate you sharing your emotions with us in the show. Uh, <laughs> I'm waiting for him to share some emotions. I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. Such a jerk. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh. I mean speaking of Mavericks, you know Stefan here. We had him at how if you guys have ever had the chance to go to one of his workshops. Um sometimes I, I used to have to work in the booth and I couldn't always get away, but the last couple hows I've had the opportunity to sit and participate in the workshop and it's incredible just the amount of information that you are able to disseminate to people in such an orderly fashion and everybody's participating. I met people during that session. It was great networking. It was fun to partner up with people who I didn't know and, and had never creatively worked with before. And I feel like it, um, I left there kind of inspired to want to do workshops like that with our clients because it's, it's just a really fun way to get people to participate in the storytelling process. So I'm a little bit curious how you got started and, with how and on the speaking circuit, you know, because to me, that's the only way that I knew you before we became friends. Well, this is something that, you know, Karen and I talk about an awful lot because Karen, Karen, and I go, Karen, and I, Karen goes further back with how than I do. Um, my, my first how, my first how was yeah. San Diego. Um, that was the first one. That I was ever a, oh, that was a great how. That was a fantastic how. It, it was that the first was one I ever how. attended. It was obviously right down. I could drive, I could drive down there. I, I had no idea that that type of environment existed. You know, you you often think, well, I'm I'm in my little bubble. You know, I know that there are other designers, and you know, I went to school for this, but I, I didn't know that it was as big as as what it was. Uh, and I was just exposed to so much. And I was in the middle of writing uh, my first book when I went to that how, but no one knew I was writing that book because I didn't know how writing a book was supposed to go. Right. So I thought you wrote the book and then you shopped it. So I was mm-hmm. writing the book, uh, and I hadn't—I didn't have a publisher. Uh, so I was just writing it what, and I'm designing it the way I thought you were supposed to write and design a book. And so going, even going to the bookstore and seeing all the the different books that existed there, and and the types of topics that were there, it really brought a lot of inspiration. So I remember thinking as I was walking through that bookstore, I'm going to have a book in this bookstore. You know, next year I'm going to sell it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to have it in the, in the bookstore this year. And and after that, I, I had made some connections. And one of those connections was um, somebody that all of us here know, Kristen Ellison, who at the time was an acquisitions editor for Rockport, uh, mm-hmm. one of the one of the, the three big publishers back then. Um, and I had uh, I had met her at, just before that conference, and I had uh, and I had reached out to her to go, hey, I'm going to have this book. You interested in publishing it? And she was really the only one that said, no, that's not really how it works. And, uh, and I said, well, can you tell me how it works? And she's like, well, are you going to how? And I said, I am now, if you're going to tell me how it works. Uh, and so I, I kind of met her there and she said, listen, we're not interested in your book, but I do have this other book uh, that I just lost my author for. Sounds like it'd be a connection. Would, would, would you be interested in writing it? And so I, I wrote that book. It ended up being my first book, which was Simple Websites. And I swear this is coming back to how. Okay. Uh, the, the, my whole goal with going to how uh, the next year was to see my book in that oh, bookstore. I love that, that was the whole purpose. I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to see the book in the bookstore. Manifest. And so I, that, I went. That's an incredible goal. I would mm-hmm. just like. To that was, yeah, right? I had no idea if it was going to be there. And I went and it was there. And uh, it's on it's on my shelf over there. It's got a bright pink cover, and you see it right when you walk in. And I was just you want to talk about welling with pride. Aww. There's my book in stacks, sitting at the How Conference bookstore. And I walk up to it, and I'm just kind of looking at it, or whatever. And these and these two girls they come over, and they're looking at books or whatever, and and 
she picks it up and she's looking at it. She goes, this looks interesting. I'm, I'm really interested in web design. This is all, again, really old. Uh, I'm really interested in web design. And I'm just thinking, man, I, should I tell her that I wrote it? <laughs> I'm sitting right here. And she says to her friend, I'm definitely getting it because look, uh, it's on the discount table. <laughs> yes. Wah, wah, wah. I was it. like, oh, these are five dollars. You should All have right. been like, I wrote that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> who's who's the graphic designer that he spoke at how quite a few times? Really well known based out of Texas. I can't remember his name though. Do you know any uh, idea? Mark okay. English? Right. Yeah, Mark English. That's it. Oh, so cool. Stefan, cool. my story That's a pretty vague question. <laughs> I know that was like I'm impressed, that was Jamie. A, that was a well, game I've show. even had a drink. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, um when your your story reflects exactly mine. So my first book I did with Hal was the texture one. And I went to the Atlanta Hal conference and I remember walking in the bookstore, kind of looking for it, and I found it, and then I just stood like 10 feet away, pretending I was looking at something else, but seeing what people would say. And here comes Mark English and one of his friends with him. He's walking over and he stops at my book. He's looking, he picks it up. He's flipping through it. And he kind of turns around to his friend and goes, hey, look at this. And then he said something like, I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he, he like rips it apart. And I'm like, oh. Oh, crap. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's so, kind of sassy, though. He's kind of sassy. And, well, well, then, so I was kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to get out of here before he realizes that's my book. <laughs> and I, I leave. And then later that afternoon, somebody had gone to his, um, uh, the session he did, and they came up to me and says, hey, Mark English was showing your book in his session. He really likes it. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then that made me feel better again, but yeah, it's it's funny. I think everybody who who does a book does that to some degree. Yeah, yeah. There were two places I wanted to see my book. I wanted to see it at, at Howe's bookstore, uh, just because there were all all of my tribe was you know there, and I always wanted to see my book um, at an airport bookstore, like when you walk oh. through the airport and wow, you see and you see that all the does books there. that does mean something. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously I never I never achieved that because it's just not the type of book that you would put there. But man, I, that was just there was there was those two pride element that ego piece. I really wanted to see it as I you walked. You still through have time though. You know I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, no, no. Writing a book is way too it's way too hard. Like You're I, I'm going to be retired soon. You can. Yeah, I, I'm at the age now where it's like, man, if that if 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 I have to get up off the couch to do something, I'm really questioning whether or not I really need to do it. <laughs> Oh. Well, I got one. For, I got one for you. So, when I did when I did my book, I asked the same thing. Like, can I be in the airport? And then they started. They laughed at me. Yeah. And I'm like, what? And he's like, no. Uh, only really good authors get in the airport. Oh. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, oh. Uh, <laughs> oh. Wow. I had I had one shot. I, I wrote one book for Wiley. Um, I had one shot at it, which was going to get a little bit broader of a distribution aspect to it because it was more of a business book, but. That book is the worst book I ever wrote. It just wasn't a very good book, unfortunately, and it was never going to get there. But I had one shot at it. I had just had one shot. I was chasing the hey. monster idea, which, by the way, Vaughn did the cover of, just so you know. Yeah, that's why it didn't go anywhere. That's why. It's because of, of your cover. This is like the saddest like, self-defeating. <laughs> <laughs> so far, we've told everyone well, not I've to dream, not to write a book, not to use to, Vaughn. But... <laughs> yeah, don't. And don't don't hire Vaughn to do your cover. Yeah. But maybe I won't. <laughs> oh my well, let's flip that. Let's flip that around really quick. Cause I would say to, going to that statement, Stefan, with your, several of your books, though, you've really made a quite a great career of influencing uh, other creatives, giving talks at how I know you were gracious enough to come to uh, rule 29 and, and inspire my team on uh, some of your creativity um, you know, uh, brainstorming collaboration. So can you share like what, what have been the positive outcomes of you, uh, exploring collaboration and creativity? Yeah. You know, the, the, to, to keep the story going, the, the books, the books actually acted sort of as a means to an end, right? They, they do become an ego piece. They become a business card. And when, when you've written, when you've written a book, then people are like, Oh, we'll have you in to speak. Cause 
obviously you have enough to talk about. That's interesting because you've written a book, right? They never read the book because if they did, they'd go, well, I'm not going to bring you in because I read it. Uh, and and I, know, I, I know what I'm getting into. Uh, but what they did do is they, you know, and that's one of the things, you know, going back to, to Jamie's question about how, that's one of the things that how did really well back in the day. They had this sort of triumphant, this triangle where it was the, it was the books and the conference and the magazine. Mm-hmm. And so each one fed the other, right? If you read a book, then you were going to speak at the conference and you were going to do an article in the magazine. If you, you know, you, you could do any of those things and it would always lead you into the other piece. Um, and it, it, it got me up on stage in a place where originally that desire was much more ego. If I'm being honest, it was really, I just, I just want to, I want to, I want to have that importance. I want people to look at me as a, as somebody that's influential in the, in the marketplace, not because I am, but just because I, I want the moniker of it. It was all very egotistical, but when, once you do it and you see the impact of it and you, you see that the words that you're saying, people are, are listening to, you're like, oh my God, I have, I have a responsibility not to be, come up here and, and be a complete jerk and give terrible mm-hmm. advice. Like I have a responsibility because I'm, I'm being placed in this position and I can't waste it. I, I, have to, I have to understand it and experience it and then share it and be truthful with that sharing. Even, it, even if it, what it does, you know, it, it deprecates why I'm here. And what I did find is that I was, I was a better speaker than I was a writer. Um, I think part of that is just the story influence growing up. Um, mm-hmm. You're able to put things into story forms and people can listen in that way. And uh, I know what, what had been influential for me and the types of activities from an ideation standpoint that, that were really positive and influential for me as I came up. Uh, I went to a very small university, Chapman University in Orange, California, and, and there were six people in my graduating class. Uh, in, in the design oh program. So we were incredibly small. Mm-hmm. And our, our program was led primarily by one teacher who taught 75% of all the design courses I took were from one one teacher Wow. who uh, spent some time at, at SVA. Um, that's where she got her degree from. Um, and, and she was incredibly passionate about the concept of ideation and trying out all these different forms with which to put people together, ideate alone and put you in groups. And how can I, how can I get more out of you? And uh, I, I don't know how she kept the energy that she kept uh, all the way through that, but um, she, ta- she taught me that there were so many different ways with which we could generate ideas and um, not one way works for everyone. So can you, can you build structures that allow people to generate ideas in whatever way that they're really comfortable and good at doing, but also benefit the group as a whole? And so I just started paying attention to it in my own life, in my own career. And as I started paying attention to it, I started writing it down. And that sort of became these philosophies that I've moved forward with. Um, I talk about on stage, I talk about in the, in the courses on, on LinkedIn Learning or um, convert into any manner of other medium to try to break apart and pull out and explore a little bit further. Uh, because it's just, it's amazing. You know, Sally Hogshead, who we've all most likely seen because she's speaking on how a couple of times, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Sally Hogshead uh, has done something similar where she's broken out the creative process in, in such a way that, you know, you know, when you go into a speaker and you feel like at some point they're not looking at you in the audience, but they are talking to you. Like they're talking just to you and nobody else is there. <laughs> uh, Sally Hogshead hit me with that when we were listening to her speak at, at a how conference, when she was talking about the creative process and this moment within it, and she called it sitting on the throne of agony. It's the moment that you know is coming in every creative process because the, there, there is a solution that's needed. There's a problem and it needs a solution and you're the one that's solving it mm-hmm. and you don't know how you're going to solve it yet. But you know that every other instance in your life when a problem has come, you have solved it. But you know that you have to enter into this darkness. That there's going to be a moment where you don't know what you're going to do and you're trusting that the light is coming. You're trusting that an idea is going to hit. And she called it the throne of agony, where you're just sitting there going, I, I have no ideas. I've got nothing. And you're just trusting in this. All of us, regardless of whether or not we produce in written form and design form and artistic form, whatever it is, we all sit on that throne and we all enter into the process willingly, knowing it's coming. But yet we do it over and over and over again. Why do we do it? Because of what happens on the other side of it. The satisfaction of solving something really well regardless of what form that takes, that satisfaction is intoxicating. It's why we keep going back to it. It's why we're, we're willing to walk into the darkness because of the light that comes on the other end. That's, that's a powerful metaphor that you have to realize everyone sitting in your audience 
is um, experiencing in whatever way they are. And it's your responsibility to give them a form that says, here's how you, in whatever way you do, can go from dark to light uh, so that you'll enter it more. Because the more you enter it, the more you solve against it, the more I'm inspired by your solution and are willing to do it again and again and again. So it's all very self-serving. So you think you're standing on stage with this with this, you know, platform, but it's really self-serving. They're teaching you. You need them to solve so that you can learn how to solve again and then teach it. It all becomes really cyclical. So it's much more self-serving than it kind of lets on. That's cool. That's so imagine if you're like eloquently put. Yeah, I agree. So imagine if you're like working for a company or you have clients, how it feels like there's a way to apply that skill to speaking with clients and solving client issues also. And that's probably yeah. where a lot of our audience, you know, could use a little bit of tutelage maybe. Yeah. So, you know, for us at first person, one of the primary elements of, of um, narrative strategy is workshopping. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe strongly in workshopping with our clients. The, the, I think that the the era of creative, that sort of era that came up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s and 90s, where clients would come to us with a brief and hand us the brief. And six weeks later, we'd come back with whatever the thing was that they were asking us for without mm-hmm. any input whatsoever. I think those <laughs> days are gone. Um, as much as we kind of relish those days, because I didn't have I didn't have clients screwing up this thing that I was making that was right. my own little beautiful thing. Uh, the reality is that they 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 have someone that they have to answer to, and they're going to spend money if you can not only solve their problem, but show them how you solved it, so that they can take that up the ladder and be able to teach the people above them why there was value in bringing you on board. And to me, the only way that happens is when you break that down. You have to break it down, and we use workshops in order to do that, where we lead them through exercises to get them to not only give us more input and inform the process but lead them to the answer that you know they need to be led to. And, and they find it on their own and mm-hmm. through their, their own steps, their own baby steps. And they can go back and, and define those baby steps to whoever they need to define it to. Uh, but if you can lead them there, because all of us, you know, from a creative standpoint, when we get to a certain level of maturity, somebody presents us a brief and we can see where it needs to go, but we're pretty sure they're not willing to go there. Right. Um, Right. We can see we can see it needs to go. There. And if we just tell them you need to go here, they're not going to believe you. So you have to walk them. You kind of have to walk them through that little darkness that we were talking about earlier. Right. Begin to the throne of agony to go. Don't worry about the darkness. Just take the next step and take the next step and take the next step. And I promise you the light's coming because I've done this enough times. Um, if, if they'll trust you to do that and you give them the exercises that provide value along the way, then the value along the way, the process becomes the deliverable as much as the deliverable at the end. So what we try to do is we try to break out that story to go, if you if you killed this project 25% of the way in, you are left with 25% of something that you can take and actually use. If we don't give you something to use along the way, then we're not doing our jobs right. We haven't broken down that story well enough for you. So we use workshops to do that. Um, all four of you use a different format to do it. You, I've, I've seen Vaughn work. He does the exact same thing, but he doesn't call it a workshop. He, he brings them along in a visual sense, step by step by step. Uh, and all of us do it in our own way and whatever our focus is. Uh, and, and, I've, and you can see it in the work. I've actually worked with Justin. I've seen the steps that he takes to do the exact same thing and the group and, and the group and the people behind him that do that for him. So in that way, we all do that. We just call it workshopping because our, our outcome is story. But our stories are usually built or based in our business for first person around the concepts of things like vision and mission and purpose, uh, which are all obviously familiar to this group and, and certainly um, to the to the philanthropical work that, that Justin and Rule 29 to do. The concept of vision and p- purpose and mission is primary. It's seminal to being able to build a story around that because you have to you have to basically say every step we're about to take is getting us one step closer to something we'll never actually realize in our in our lifetime. And we have to be comfortable with the steps. So the process becomes something that you have to invent. The process becomes a deliverable. And that's what we've been working at first person. We're not there yet. Um, we're taking little steps to get there to make our process more of a deliverable than just the thing at the end. 
that people mm-hmm. come to us because of the way we work, not not just the outcome of the of the thing at the end. That's so I, I think that's the future of business as as we start to move into this world where we're much more connected, um, much more collaborative, with people that are hiring us because they're they're not good at walking through the darkness on their own. Right. Um, they're 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 disturbing, yeah. right? So it, we become the flashlight to help them see that every step that they're about to take is going to have value. So the process becomes as much the deliverable as anything. Oh, I agree. I think that because I, I know that when we walk through a process with our clients, that there is no question that they latch onto it and buy into it. If we explain that process and what they're going to experience, it just kind of it locks us in, I would say. Mm-hmm. But how would you tell, let's say, a designer that's a senior level designer that really wants to get more into the strategy and business side of things, break into that side of their company, recommend that they approach that? Sure, sure. The To me, the connective thread for me personally, you know, as, as I was coming up as a designer, so much, so much of what I was focused on you know how it, how it is because we, we've all been in this industry long enough. At, at the very beginning, um, you, you're looking for examples. You're basically trying to replicate great work. That's your goal when you're very, very young because you don't know. You don't know what, what, what good work is. You don't know how to define it. Mm. And eventually you create a style. Eventually you create an opinion. You create a perspective and a POV, uh, a view of the world, and you understand what it is that what you believe is good, and you work mm-hmm. towards those things. Um, as a designer, so much of what I was I was looking to do started off very artistic in my approaches. Um, I wanted to be a better artist, and I wasn't, and it really frustrated me. The areas that I had success, frankly, were my ability to sell my work, not the work itself. Was the ability to stand up in front of somebody and and tell them why uh, this work was going to solve their problem for them, even if the work wasn't great. I was almost masking my inability to be a, a good designer by my ability to sell it. Mm-hmm. So what I found was I was I was usually not equipped unless I did my homework, unless I had I had my work based on a strategy, a strategy that's uh, that isn't necessarily undeniable, but can be agreed upon. And for me, the place where I, I found that connective thread, and I think, again, this goes back to that story foundation is in the audience. It wasn't until I started paying attention to the audience beyond their, the, the, the moniker we give them, or the persona we assign to them. When I started paying attention to the audience um, as a human, not as a, as a title, uh, it started challenging me in the work that I was doing to be able to say that this work will resonate with them because blank. Mm-hmm. And not just the role. Again, you have to get down to the people. And that requires a certain amount of ethnography that usually isn't something that most designers want to partake in because it takes time away from designing. But understanding why is just as, as valuable as understanding what. And that requires okay, a level of empathy. Right? Hold on. Say, what was that word you used again? Ethnography? Yeah. Uh, it's Ethnography is the study of people in their environments. Okay. So we, as creatives, have a tendency to research in a very unempathetic form. We typically look at other people's research and try to piece those things together in a way that forms uh, a picture of who our person is. Ethnography is talking to people. It's not reading about people. It's not other people's opinions of those people. It's actually speaking to them, um, seeing them in their environments and where they work where they live, where they interact with whatever it is that we're creating something for so that we can understand them beyond just the relative nature that most personas are built on. Remember, you know, most of us, when we, when we work with a client, for instance, our client will give us a persona. That persona is, you know, here's a CMO, a chief marketing officer, or here's a CTO, a chief technology officer. They struggle with um, finding the right solutions and da, da, da. it's always in relation to our product or our, or our industry. That's the way they build their personas because they don't think of them as people. They think of them as buyers. And in order to have a buy decision, I have to understand what it is that you need from the products that I make so that I can make my products and my marketing attached to it. Ethnography, you, you find out those influences that create that relational connection between your product and your, and your customer are actually imbued with much more subtlety than you think that they are, that that their home lives influence who they are as people. 
the what they what they came up with, you know, how they were brought up, um, what their industries are, uh, the things that were that they were interested in as they came up. Why are they in this position? What makes a CTO a CTO? And what you find out is that is that there are influences that are altruistic, as most personas are built that way, but there are also pieces that are selfish, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's the nature that we all are. We all have selfish needs. The need. The, you know, the need to understand where I'm going, the opportunities that exist within me, the, the ego I need to have. Ego is a, is a huge piece to this. Um, most people's fear of change, most people's fear of, of, um, uh, of the perspective other people may have of them or their, what their reputation is. All those things influence the persona, but you don't get to know them unless you get to talk to them. And so I'm a big believer in ethnography. I'm a big believer in designers and creatives stepping outside of the field of making to understand who the audience is. And it wasn't until I, I committed to that being a part of my process that that I, I grew beyond the plateau I had sort of become to. And we all get there, right? We plateau to that place where it's like, I'm good at this one thing. I just want to do this over and over again and get paid for it. And at some stage, um, because we're creatives, we get bored with the plateau. And you're like, man, I want to be better than this. And for me, the better became well, then I need to pay more attention to the audience and not just assume that they're me, assume that they like what I like, assume that they do what I do, assume that they Mm -hmm. think like I think. And that means I have to push for that. Right, Stefan? I mean, like sometimes you don't just get that privilege when you're working with the client because, you know, how many times, I mean, honestly, how many times have you been given work in your career and you have not been involved in any of the meetings, any of the you know upfront work, and they yeah. and they hand you this assignment, and they're just like, okay, so we need you to write a story about you know X Y Z, and you're like, like why? Because <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, and why? You're like, right? I don't. Why, why would you do that? And then they try to explain it to you, and you're like, but have you thought about ABC one two three? You know, and they're like, no, we hadn't thought about that. And then you're like, this. I mean. We just need to be in creatives need to be part of the conversation. We just talked about this with Marty Newmeyer, Absolutely. you know, recently. And, and if you're not part of the conversation, then you can't really do good work unless you're a really good detective. But often I yeah, find that, yeah. that companies want to cut corners by leaving you out of the process. And then the deliverable is going to suck. I mean, yeah. because you well, don't you know ask. what you're doing. You don't. Yeah, you get you got to ask for it up front. And, and, and this is this is, um, you know, we, we have all been married long enough that there are times <laughs> when um, when our, our significant other has an issue. And we have all learned because we are old uh, that <laughs> that we, we've learned to ask, do you want me to listen to you or do you want me to solve it? Which one do you want? And we've kind of come to that understanding in our in our relationships that that's kind of the secret to go. Sometimes they are, are something that just wants us to listen. And you're like, cool. Then if I know that going in, I'm not going to offer a solution. But sometimes they want a solution. Mm-hmm. And I think that that oftentimes when when a designer gets a brief, that should be the question we ask. Do you want this to be fast or do you want it to be good? Yeah. If you want it to be fast, I'll make I'll make huge assumptions. I'll make these assumptions. I'll create this art. I'll do this thing and it'll be OK. Right. It'll be it'll be it'll be fast. It's good enough. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you want it to be good, I got to be involved earlier because I'm going to keep I'm going to keep doing with. By the way, this is something, Jamie, that, that you are so good at in the work that you oh. do. I'm going to keep asking why. <laughs> why? Why? Why do you want that? Why do you need that? Why do you like? And in order for me Just to ask like why, a two year old, I, I am like a two year old. It's frankly, it's it's your greatest business trait. And I would imagine it's what's allowed you to be as successful as you have been. Because Aww, you're the one that raises you. your hand and says, why? why? Why are we doing this? Why should it be this way? Why shouldn't we do this? People don't if, like it, though. They definitely people hate it. People yeah. can't stand it because, because you're digging into it. You said you want this to be good. If you want it to be good, I'm going to keep asking why. If you don't right. want it to be good, there's going to be cheaper options for you than me. Yeah. I don't want, want to accept that work anymore. <laughs> I disagree, Jamie, that people don't. I think that our clients do like it. I think that's why they... They love having. No, I, I'm thinking from a corporate setting. Like oh, it is okay. not enjoyable to be the you're one. Li- in you're the living meeting. in the past. Yeah, I was living <laughs> in the past. Now yeah. clients love it. Hey, Steph, I, I'd love to um, say two things. One, uh, I couldn't agree more that process and you know, sort of bus stops along the way of that process is really vital to our interaction with our clients and giving them things as 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 we go to help navigate 
and believe and build trust in that. I think that's, that's key to that future. But I, I would love for you to share your perspective on falling in love with the process and the value of that as a creative. That makes my heart happy. <laughs> this is yeah, it, love it, language right here. I think we get into this industry in part because we love to make. We love to make things. There is something, there is something intoxicating about there being a blank page before us and then after us there isn't. And we've made something. Usually uh, creatives in some way grew up making. I was the exact same way. Yeah, I grew up fairly poor and, and um, I had to become really craftsy if I wanted things, if I wanted Christmas decorations or if I wanted to make something, you know, I had to like, get resourceful and make it. We, we just, we love, we love the making of things. We love to solve problems. And if you're a designer, we love to solve problems with design. Sometimes that's with art. Sometimes it's with composition, or color or illustration or whatever. We, we love to solve the problems in a visual way. But unfortunately, when we get into a professional life, we are jolted to some degree by a truth. And that truth is we no longer control the outcome of the thing that we make, that we don't control where something goes. Our client is giving us money in order for us to solve a problem for them, but not in their absence, in their presence. And that means that they're going to have input. And that means that we're going to sometimes disagree, probably oftentimes disagree with that input. But in the end, they're paying for us to do so. And uh, unfortunately, what we make is not art. We are, do not work on consignment. We, we solve a problem for somebody else to include them. And what we find out pretty early, and this is interesting because my daughter uh, is fairly early in her career. She works for an ad agency in LA, a fairly large one, and she's experiencing this right now. You know, she grew up like all of us did in school, falling in love with the making and the solving, and especially for ourselves. And then all of a sudden, a client wants to do this instead of this, and you're like, "Well, why do you want to do that? That's not right. Like, that's not gonna. That, why don't you want to do this? This is gonna have more impact." Well, we don't think that's gonna be right. They they take safe routes. They they have a tendency to move things. Um, through an economy that they experience that we don't inside of their political environment. And in doing so, they quote unquote ruin our amazing idea and our amazing design. And it becomes something we didn't create and we're disappointed by it and we're discouraged by it because it happens over and over and over again. And what you have to understand is we, we are no longer in control of what we make, not to that degree, not unless you get to a state with which what you make can be looked upon as consignment. If you get to that, if I'm going back in the advertising world, that George Lois era, where it's like, you come to me and uh, you come to me because I create successful brands. And if you're going to have input, I'm not taking you. You come to me and let me do whatever I want. And I'm going to, as, as he said, I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming into worldwide success. Those instances are incredibly rare. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's, the, that's the 10th of a single percent of creatives reach that level. Most of us work in an environment with which we're no longer in control of what we make, not in its totality. Yeah. I don't know if that exists anywhere. Not anymore. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I, don't think I, so. Um, I, I want to bring a little, I, I think everything you said is, is true, but there is also a level of project that you don't need that deep of a, of a story to pull off. It's pretty pedestrian of sorts. And I say be. that because, because I'm working on, a bunch of packaging where, um, and the marketing for that matter. And it's, it's pretty industrial. The only story we're working with is basically our products better than the big brands. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, so if you're dealing with like a product or a client or a company on that level, mm -hmm. and it's like nothing about what they want to do involves story or, or narrative for that matter, uh, to a greater degree, then, then how do you handle that and still, you know, be pragmatic in what we're putting forward to try to, you know, help them get leverage in the industry? You know, you, you, in your question, you said um, what they want to do, right? It's an interesting question because uh, they've come to you to help them, not necessarily to, to solve something they couldn't solve but to help them solve it in a, in a better way. 
better being subjective in that in that context. You've reached a point in your career where you can recognize expectation without necessarily having to ask for it. You can see the past work that they have done. You can see what their industry looks like. You can see what their budget is and understand the, the role that the budget plays uh, as you move through this. But you, you have determined what expectations need to exist within that. And you've also recognized that you don't have to create something artistically amazing, the type of thing that would get talked about in, in design journals in order to solve the problem for them based on the restrictions that exist within the context of their problem, right? You, you're using the context of their problem in order to do so. But not every project that you've taken on, you've done that. I know of, I know no. of uh, multiple product, uh, projects within your portfolio that I often reference that they came to you for something pedestrian and you went, no, you don't, it's not going to solve your problem. I, I'm going to challenge your desire for something pedestrian in order to give you a solution that I believe is going to accomplish the goal because something isn't matching up. You have pedestrian expectations of the work, but you have an elevated expectation of its impact. Mm -hmm. Hold on, something's, something's not matching. We need to bring those two into balance. Either the work needs to come up or your expectations need to come down. That again is getting to the concept of strategy, the role that strategy plays in how we move. You just happen to do it as an integrated part of your communication to your client because you've been doing this for God near 50 decades. I swear you've been in the market forever. <laughs> no, that's so, Karen. Anyways. Today um, it feels like that. Uh, <laughs> Steph, wow. I think one thing to just highlight is one of the things that you say, and I, I want to just underline it, is even to Vaughn's point, let, let's say you do all of that and it doesn't work out the way you would hope it to, which happens, right? It happens to all of us at times. But the concept of falling in love with the process, regardless yeah. of the outcome, That's right. is, is really, I think, one of my favorite magical things that you've actually shifted me on. Um, and one of the things that from a, a creative director, you know, head of brand I share that with my team all the time of, listen, fall in love with the process. And when there's a roadblock, that's just a part of the process, right? That's sure. just a, mm -hmm. a, a new a new element we can put into our palette of solving a problem. That's right. Um, that's right. No, it's, and it's very true. I, I, you know, because because we're not in control of, of the um, uh, the outcome of most of the work that we do, that we don't we, we don't get to just go off on our on our little hole and create something and come back and say, here it is. I'm not doing anything more on this. Um, <laughs> We're going to be constantly Glorious. disappointed. Yeah, I know. Wouldn't it be awesome? We're going to be constantly <laughs> disappointed if we're if we're if our focus, if our joy, is that the thing that I've made is public and people can see it and use it and work with it. We're going to be disappointed because it's never going to live up to the expectations we had when we created it. Because other people have influence, people that may, in our opinion, sh shouldn't have influence, but because they're paying us, they do. And in that way, if if we want to be successful um, financially. We have to learn how to integrate that in a way that, that is, is a positive experience for our clients, but also has a positive impact on the work. But if, if we keep looking at the outcome of our work as where our joy li lives, where our joy sits, then we're going to be disappointed. And it's going to, it's going to, in essence, move us away. We've all seen people that are really talented designers become disenfranchised with the creative process and move into other fields because they simply can't take, they can't take the fact that their work in its purest form isn't what is out in the world. And what I have found is that it, it requires a shift, that our joy can't come from the, the end. It can't come from the thing we make. It has to come from the act of making. If, mm -hmm. if our joy oh, is placed in the act of making and not all the things we make, then anytime our client sends us back to the drawing board, it's just one more opportunity to do it again. You didn't love the way I solved it? And I'm going to do it again. And that's where I find my joy is in solving it, solving it over and over and over again and doing something multiple times if my joy is in the process then regardless of what the outcome is, I'll never be disappointed because I'm always going to enter into the process. And we can find our little team. I wish I would have heard that right after I got into the industry. That's great advice. But, it's, but you also have to recognize too, though, some people are just very challenging to work with. And some sure. people, no matter what you deliver, you're just not going to vibe. And mm -hmm. your personalities might not match. Your work might not match. They might have thought they wanted right. something. You're not good at providing that because you just don't have the skill set. And it's okay, in my opinion, at that point in time to just be super honest and say, I don't think I can deliver what it is that you're asking of me. Because yeah. if not, mm -hmm. you're just going to spend all this time bashing your head against the wall. Everybody feels bad. 
And I don't know. I just feel like clients, sometimes it's refreshing when you're just like, I just, I don't do that. Or you might know somebody that does it, you know, and you're like, just be honest with yourself. Just give up the work. Sometimes it's okay. I mean, I'm up for the challenge. You know me. (laughs) We'll try. Well, as as we mature, you guys, and you guys have experiences too, you come to recognize those signs before you ever get into a relationship because you you start to recognize that these projects are not projects. They are relationships. Mm-hmm. It's, it's no longer about the thing I'm making. It's who I'm making it with. And you can start to see the signs of that in, in early discovery meetings before you decide what it is. You can, you, there are little clues, red flags that come up. And those red flags start to have more and greater meaning. And you start to go, I can already tell the project's cool. The relationship isn't going to fit here. And so you start, yeah. you start to make those decisions based on relationships, so not true. just based on project opportunity. Vibe check. But I, yeah. I, and I would just I, say I, to, to Vaughn's point, like if I wish I would have known earlier too. Sorry, Karen, if I interrupted you, I apologize. Thank you for totally flipping me off. I think, it's, I think it's mandatory to learn how to say no. And I wish I would have known that early on because I said yes to so many not great projects, didn't have the attitude of falling in love in the process. And I think there's years of misery that I hope our show can help others avoid. So I just want to support that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Karen, did you have something? Actually, um, what you just said is a pretty good segue to what I was thinking. So, you know, I'll take my finger back, but. (laughs) (laughs) The bird. One of the things that we all as designers or creatives, writers, whatever, I think that early in our careers, our mentors, our teachers, everybody does a terrible job at teaching you that it's not about just sitting and making something pretty. It is about business. It's about learning the business of the company that you work for, your clients. The strategy part, it can be so much more fun or just as satisfying as creating the work and on the page. And if you can get past the making part of it and embrace the strategy part of it, and I know I've talked about this in our podcast over and over again and gain control of the overall relationship, whether it's your um, senior bosses, your clients, it doesn't matter who it is, but if you can be part of the discussion and be part of the team that is making decisions, it changes everything. You know me. I 100% agree with you on the fact that process is everything when it comes to the making and the, but that's only a piece of it. And I think as designers, you can't sit and just design for 40 years. You can, but you're not going to go anywhere. Where you really, where your career is really going to take off is when you become part of the discussion. And you really learn the business side of things and you really embrace the business side of things. You know, I don't think that I am an ego person, but I absolutely love being part of the conversation that is going to change the business. I always feel like the design part of it or the uh, actual creative part of it is the icing on the cake. That is what's going to, you know, make a change, make an impact. But Without understanding all of the business stuff behind it, it's not going to make the right impact. Well said. I love it. That's what I get to work with every day. You guys jealous? <laughs> Just saying. All right. So that was that was worth the wait, Karen. Thank you for lifting me the bird and telling me to pause. Um, so, Steph, we've taken uh, too much of your time, but we have to end the show with one of our with one of our. You know, I could go forever on it's this because one. he's the great storyteller and he. He's handsome. And a friend. Handsome, yes. Um, That's right. Yes. So we would love for you to close us out with uh, one of your shit show moments of your career. Um, <laughs> you know, something that either was shocking or was something that really made you be like, oh, shit, I need to change how I do something. Yeah, I I, I got asked one time, what was, what's been, what's my greatest failure as a, as a creative, as a designer? Oh. And I, I told a story in, in um, uh, Chasing the Monster Idea about uh, an incredible fail I had, but it really wasn't the biggest fail I had. It was, uh, this was about 10 years ago, Kansas City. 
Uh, Kansas City uh, takes on an ABA basketball team. So we know anything about the ABA. It's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, obviously lower rung um, talent. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was back in its heyday. I mean, the ABA was originally designed uh, to be a competitive league to get bought by the NBA. It was its whole purpose, but yeah, Julius Irving back in the, in the, uh, in the seventies played in the ABA, but the ABA is still around, uh, but the teams, the teams end up jumping around and, you know, they're only around for like a year or two and then they run out of money because the talent's not good enough and and the product's not good enough. But um, Kansas City got an ABA team, and uh, as a basketball guy, I really wanted to work on that work. And so we approached them and said, uh, "I we want to we want to do this work. We'll do it pro bono at the beginning, and then once you guys start making money, we'll 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 start making money with you." And they said, "Well, we've got a little bit of a budget from a marketing standpoint, uh, and why don't why don't you work towards spending that in media, and then you you can design what it is going what what it is that would that would work in those spaces." And so. The, the, the marketing budget was incredibly small, as you would imagine. And so in order for us to be successful, I deemed strategically that we were going to have to generate um, media impressions organically. We were going to have to do things that got media coverage in order to expand our ability because we weren't going to be able to spend it. So one of the ways that I wanted to do that was to be creative with a billboard. Going into the city, into Kansas City, um, there was a particular space where I was like, if I can get this billboard and I can be creative with it, maybe I can get people to talk about it. And so I had designed this billboard. One of the things I had at at my disposal, because we were in a really big arena, was comp tickets. I had lots of comp tickets I could give out. (laughs) Um, And so I I had this idea. What I was going to do was I was going to make this billboard that during the day talked about the, the team and, you know, the, the come to the game, announced that the team was going to be there. But at night, I wanted to replace the lights on the billboard with black lights. And I wanted to put a secret message written across the billboard in, in UV ink that you would only see at night. And it looked like somebody got up there and spray painted it. And uh, cool. it was text this number for free tickets. Oh no. Uh-oh. I can see where this is going. So, well maybe Was it your number? We'll <laughs> no, 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 no. We'll see we'll see if it's where it's going. So, do I test it? No. Oh. No, I, I have uh I am a creative director of significant respect. Very I, important. I know what I am doing. I I have the billboard printed. Oh, I wow. have Custom lights made because black lights don't exist for those lamps that are on, on a billboard. Wow. I have custom black lights made. I spend 70% of the marketing budget on this one billboard. The day it goes up, I pull off on the side of the freeway around dusk and I've got my camera. I'm going to take pictures of it. I, I've, I've already written the communication arts submission oh, sure. for this. Uh, <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> And your cape uh, out. I wait, I wait for the, I wait for dark to hit and uh, dark hits and all of the other billboards, the lights come on and you're like, here it is. Didn't work. No, <laughs> oh my God. no. The black lights come on, but black lights are not meant to throw. That's not their strength. Oh. So the black lights are at the bottom of this billboard and I'm getting about three inch, three feet of throw. And my message is is 15 feet away, and it's just dark. The whole thing is dark, and it never worked. And I have this for the next month. I have this billboard. (laughs) None of it works. The black light didn't throw. I didn't test it. It, Nothing nothing worked. And I remember our our client coming to us and being like, we saw the billboard. And you're like, oh, awesome. And I'm waiting for for the, you know, it didn't work. But they saw it during the day, and every time they came through half that month, they only saw it during the day. <laughs> and then they went by at night and went, "What the actual what is going on here?" And uh, not one text message to that to that phone number. And by the way, I said, "Text this for free tickets on a billboard with people in their car." Right. Like they can you know, they pull out their phone and be like, text four, seven, three. So like they're going to put their heads down to ever text it. It was an absolute massive fail. Um, 
It's not entirely because of me that the team went out of business six months in. But that's not that I don't think it's entirely because of me, but I definitely didn't help uh, in, that, wow. in that process. Absolute massive failure. Wow. As my grandpa used to say, better you than me. It's <laughs> <laughs> such so a grandpa true. thing to say. <laughs> Yeah. You're such a grandpa. <laughs> Everybody That's laughs. better than I thought. Know. I thought you were going to say like someone went up and spray painted inappropriate things like ding dongs up there or something. They could have. Yeah, no on. one would have seen I, it because it didn't I work. I thought it was going to be a wrong phone number. Yeah. Nope. 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 That was good storytelling, I, everyone. That was really good. Yeah. We didn't even I know until the end. there the whole time. <laughs> I was well, really Your physics of black lights come into play and you're like... Maybe I should have tested that. Well, hey, my wonderful, amazing, tall friend. I hope we get to see you at How. Yay. And and thank you so much for being on um, this show with a gaggle of knuckleheads. It was it was my pleasure. Awesome. I'll come back anytime you want me. Love you. Yay. See you, buddy.